Our image of God changes everything. Our image of God changes everything. What we think about ourselves, others, how we interact, what we do, how we think about our lives, and how we think about the world. Think back to how you imagined God when you were a child. Or if you're a child, imagine how you think about God. Was God loving or stern? Was God warm or cold? Inviting or welcoming or resisting and hard? Forgiving or scolding? Or maybe some confusing mix of all those things. And how did that image change as you got older? Or maybe has it changed? As a child, some of you know, I say this somewhat frequently, I came to Jesus through Mary. I was living in Germany at the time, and there was lots of Mary statues in various places in Bavaria along the sides of the road, and I was captivated by this lovely woman who looked so welcoming. And I believed in God, and I knew about Jesus, but God seemed big and distant, and incomprehensible. I knew God loved me, but I also knew God's standards were really, really high. And so much higher than I felt I could reach as a child. But Mary was a mom, and raised Jesus. And there was something about that that intrigued me. I knew that Jesus had never sinned, but I was pretty sure he still had to learn how to clean his room up and make his bed. And he had to do things like tell his parents where he was going, not wander off to the temple like he did and make them very afraid. She would have needed a lot of patience, I think. Even though he was God, I still think she needed some patience. And I wanted a patient God. I wanted a God like Mary. And God used her and my parents to form an image of a more loving, more patient God as I grew older. But that early image still stuck with me about this very demanding God who wanted everything from me. And so when I went to college, I was susceptible to some teaching about God that wasn't healthy for me. I was a music major at the time, and I was doing musical theater, and I was loving it, and I also took my first art class. It was something my mom had encouraged me and I loved to draw and to paint. But at a Bible study one evening, the leaders had us list the things that we loved to do 
and then said, unless we could show that we could use these things to serve God and preach the gospel, we had to give them up. And theater and art were really suspect in the eyes of this group. And I was a teen still, and I didn't know how to respond to this. And they had us write these things on a piece of paper and then burn it. And needless to say, I was deeply committed to God, so I burned the paper and I watched the word art, and I still remember this, become ash. I sacrificed my love of color and art to an image of God who didn't think art was good enough for ministry. Eugene Peterson, a pastor and a theologian, uh, known most for his monumental project of translating the entire Bible into common English called The Message, he tells a story about his mother. He grew up in Montana, and he would go with her As she, a very petite, dynamic force of nature, as he describes her, would go into the mountains and hold worship services and preach for the lumberjacks and mountain men, sometimes the only woman in the room. And she did this for years, and Peterson said he learned so much about the love of God and the power of women preaching the gospel and ministry just by watching her. And then someone came to his mother and said, women aren't allowed to preach, and they're certainly not allowed to teach men. And so she stopped. She sacrificed this calling in her life to an image of God who didn't want her gifts. Now, it took me years to reclaim art and theater from that ash and to find folks who could show me that I could serve God with paint and colored pencils, as I've inflicted upon many of you over the years, and with theater and dance and music. I still remember the first time I did liturgical dance in a huge Catholic church with about a thousand people. It was amazing to see worship and dance come together. And it took Peterson's mom years, but she also learned that God did allow her to preach and teach men, and so she went back into ministry. So our Old Testament passage today about Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac is disturbing, and it should be. And we join Abraham on a journey that began long before this story as God is slowly teaching him a better image of God. But when we come to this story, first we need to take off our 21st century glasses, okay? So the first thing is, this is not a newspaper story that you read and then you toss, or uh, something on your favorite 24-hour news channel. Father attempts to sacrifice son, thwarted by God. News at 11. No, this was a story 
that had been told for centuries a part of a much larger story in the first five books of the Old Testament that was the story of a people. And they continually went back to this story for more insight on the character of God. If we just stick with what it says in this one section, we might come away with a disturbing image of who God is, the very image that God is trying to dispel. So that's the first thing. Take off your 21st century glasses. Don't read it as a newspaper story. The second thing is Isaac. He's referred to as a boy. The same Hebrew word for boy in this passage is the same Hebrew word in the passage for young men. And that word is also used in other places in the Old Testament, meaning older people. So we have this image of a child when, in fact, historically, he is seen to be, by some, 25, and others, early 30s. And in the tradition, often seen as 33. Now, you might want to ask why that particular number. We'll get to that. He also was asked to carry the wood up a side of a mountain. That's not going to be something a child is going to be able to do. This was a lot of wood. So somebody that is tall and fully grown. And the other thing is he understood the sacrificial system of their religious practice. He asks his father, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Implying he knew that there was supposed to be a sacrifice. And Abraham responds, not with you are going to be the sacrifice, but God will provide a lamb. All things that should cue us that this is not about Abraham sacrificing Isaac, killing him, but something more. The third thing, when we're coming to this passage, is scripture often interprets itself. And we needed to do that. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a dialogue going back and forth. And when the church reads the, New Test- the Old Testament, or what's known as the Hebrew Scriptures, we don't read them in the same way as those who are of the Jewish tradition. And that's okay. The Hebrew Scriptures were the stories that formed Jesus and were the, the stories that Jesus used to teach and to preach the gospel. But with the death and resurrection, and then Pentecost and the formation of the church, these stories were read in light of Jesus and what Jesus did for us. Jesus points to this himself in the Gospels, how he takes Old Testament passages and says, look, here I am. Even that beautiful passage, the road to Emmaus, where the disciples are dejected and going along the road. What has happened? And Jesus comes alongside them and opens the scriptures, the Old Testament, to them and shows who he is through all the pages. We even have this story 
mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. So hear this from the letter to the Hebrews. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, his wife, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered God faithful who made the promise. And so from this one man, he, as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise from the dead. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19. Abraham reasoned that even God could raise from the dead. So another cue that we read this story in light of the whole of Scripture, not on its own. So now we have a bit of a context for today's story. He was called to leave his homeland and go to Canaan, the promised land. He trusts God for a time that he's going to be this father of many, but he's not having any kids. And Sarah decides, with Abraham's consent, to take matters into her own hands and gives Hagar, his slave, to him to bear a child. Yes, this is dysfunctional. No, this is not a good way to to follow God. And they learn that this is a bad idea. Sarah becomes jealous, and Hagar is mistreated and runs away. And God comes into the picture and says, Hagar, I see you. I'm sorry this is happening. I will care for you and for your child. Abraham and Sarah get another visitation from God, and they're told they're going to have Isaac. And they laugh at God. That's interesting. You didn't laugh at the gods of the nations surrounding Abraham. That was just not something you did. But Abraham laughed. That's where we get the name Isaac. He laughs. That's what it means in Hebrew. Abraham had other encounters with God through the years, including going toe-to-toe with God about the destruction of two infamous cities. And he went back to God and said, if there's 50 righteous people, don't destroy it. And God said, sure, okay. If there's 10 righteous people, he goes against God. He has a conversation with God. And finally, Isaac is Born and the family is overjoyed. There's still dysfunction. There's still mistreatment. And God still shows up even in the midst of this. So I hope you hear Abraham is not perfect by any stretch, neither is Sarah. But God keeps meeting them at every point to change 
Abraham's image of who God is. Now God has to learn the most important lesson of all, that God is a God of life. The place that they travel ultimately becomes the place of the Jerusalem temple. Abraham tells his servants, we will come back to you. We, we will come back to you. And he tells Isaac, God will provide a lamb. So he's still trusting that God is going to come through. But he still has to learn finally that God is never going to demand the life of Isaac in the first place. Contrary to all the violent images of God surrounding Abraham, God is forever banning human sacrifice. And so there, God provides a ram caught in the thicket to be the sacrifice in Isaac's place. So reading through our lens as a Christian, as a disciple... This story becomes a powerful foreshadowing of God coming in Jesus to do what humans couldn't do for themselves. No amount of sacrifice, animal or human, could bring that restoration finally, once and for all, between God and humanity. Only God could do this. And so on the site of the almost sacrifice of Isaac, Jesus centuries later, was the lamb that God provided on the cross in Jerusalem, God's self on the cross. And the final sacrifice, the one that we remember every time we come to this altar. God took Abraham on a journey to change his image of God, a God who called him, who talked with him, who listened to him, who could handle Abraham talking back, who did not take offense at God at, uh, being laughed at, even incorporated that into the name of Isaac, and proved that God was a God of life and not death. So for you... What does this all mean for us? How is God changing your view of him? How might God be gently, over the years, forming a new, more life-giving image of him to replace those that are no longer helpful? How might you, as I did, recover from the ashes things sacrificed to a harmful image of God. Amen.